Hey listeners, do you enjoy movies? So do we. And that's why we record Nerds on Film, our weekly podcast where it's just us sitting around making jokes and talking movies. In fact, if you guys have not subscribed to that already, you really should. I'll wait. Have you done it yet? You haven't? What is wrong with you? You're super lazy, right? Jeez, we made it really easy. You just go to nerdonomy.com and you click the freaking iTunes button. Stop procrastinating, get off your lazy ass, and go do it. Thank you. Once again, our valiant heroes, Sir Brian and his loyal squire, Norman, find themselves on a long and arduous journey. And they come across an inn, an inn trapped in turmoil. Oh, Norman, how long have we been riding for? Oh, well, as far as I figure it, uh, more than I can count. Yeah, there we go. Look, Norman, my rear is completely numb. I need a place where I can rest my head for a bit. Oh, that's quite good, my lord, because turns out my village is right nearby. Is it? It is. You never told me about where you came from. Oh, it's a lovely place, and my family's quite well known, you see. Oh, really? What are they known for? Fourteen generations of Toshers. <laughs> We've been shoving in other people's pool longer than anyone else in the entire area. What an accomplishment. It is, ain't it? My father was so disappointed when I became a squire. Anyway, let's go ahead and head on down to the local inn. I know the innkeeper. He'll give us a good room. And so they journeyed on to this inn. This inn that apparently Norman knows the innkeeper. A distinguished knight, I see. Welcome, my lord. Welcome to me inn. Norman, is that you? I haven't seen you in ages. Oh, yes, it's my, uh, I've, you know, been traveling about and what have you. You got any straw for us to sleep on and perhaps a hot meal? Uh, yes, please. Me and my squire have been on a very long and arduous journey, and we, we could use some rest. Oh, squire, you say. Oh, that's unfortunate for you. Too bad you didn't take up your family profession. But that's okay. No, no matter. Don't worry. I've got a lovely feast cooking right now. We've got some chow fun, and we've got some sweet and sour chicken, and we've got a lovely plate of dumplings waiting for you, too. Norman, you didn't tell me this was a continental inn. Oh, well, you see, yeah, we're we're quite diverse here in this community. (laughs) My lord, do you hear that? Hear what? Oh, it sounds as if a woman has fallen down into an outhouse. There's just floors giving out on it, and she's sitting in a pile of poo. That is oddly specific. Well, it comes with a family heritage, you say. Yes, you claim for the expert. <laughs> Norman, no time for rest. We have work to be done. Norman, you are precisely correct. The outhouse completely collapsed, and she's completely covered in... Holy sh- Yes, I must admit, I'm used to rescuing damsels from towers and from dragons. I've never really rescued a woman below me before. Oh, well, may I recommend some rope, my lord? Yes, that'd be a good idea. Which rope shall we use? Oh, well, we got that nice, soft, velvety kind that no, you no, bring no, with no, you. No, 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 uh, not, not that one. Oh, okay, how about just the hemp one, then? That'll work. Right, now, fix it into a loop. Thank you. My lady, don't worry. We shall get you out of this any moment. Here, grab the hoop. Good. Now, fix it around your waist. Good. No, not too tight. Good. All right. Norman, hold the rope. I must hoist her up with my own strength. You got it, my lord, but she's quite... Oh, <laughs> wow. Oh, oh. Uh, 
Dangled Milady! Not a willy! I'll have you off in a moment! She's quite well built, she is, my lord! You have no idea! <laughs> Milady, please, you are filthy here. Take my handkerchief and can you clean yourself off with it? Oh, oh, ow, oh, oh. Norman? Ah, uh, yes, my lord. I have to admit, I think I liked her more when she was covered up shit. Oh, I couldn't see that, my lord. <coughs> <coughs> Thank you for saving me, my lord. I will keep this handkerchief forever as a symbol of your love. Wait, wait, wait I'm sorry, what? Love? Oh, me lord, you saved me daughter. You saved me daughter. Thank you so much. And undefined the two of you. Betrothed already. Yes, but it was just on the... I'm sorry, what? Oh, yes. Uh, well, you see, me lord, in my village, when you intend to declare your intention to marry, to wed, you traditionally cover your bride-to-be in uh, a bunch of poo. <laughs> interesting custom. Yeah, what interesting people we are. Oh, me lord, I can't wait. I absolutely can't wait. I'm going to prepare a grand feast of tamales and pozole and enchiladas. Indeed. Yes, it'll be quite an event. Normand, sidebar, please. Ah, uh, y- yes, me lord. I don't mean to be rude, but... Run away! Run oh, away! Oh, 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 goodbye! Get the horses! Goodbye, thank you! Um, you know, my lord, uh, we may have just performed the most gravest of insults upon the, uh, one of the most respected members of me village, and he does happen to have a bit of a bloodthirst, he does, and, um, we might want to run further away. Where do you suggest we go? Oh, I hear Mexico is quite nice this time of year. Yes, that sounds lovely. Yes, indeed. Shall we? Uh, By the way, where is Mexico? And so our brave adventurers went, galloping off into the distance, leaving behind the fair maiden Vera, who they had freed from her unfortunate circumstances, and were not at all cowardly fleeing from an accidental betrothal, but rather being called on to other duties, perhaps south of the border. Oh, Lord, not again. Brian, Brian, what? Can you wake up, please? I'm, I'm, I'm up, I'm up. You were having that dream again, weren't you? Mm, what dream? The one where I play the squire. Maybe. Not cool, dude. Not cool. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. Eric, I think that cold open is probably going to go down as our longest one recorded. I, I think it has set records. In fact, I don't even know if I'm Normand or if I'm me. Or the innkeeper, for that matter. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm confused now. Oh, okay, well. So I might start talking like Normand, I might. Or I probably should. You've totally shattered the fourth wall. Thanks. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe in walls. I do open spaces. Uh-huh. Yeah, anyway. Uh, how you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm starting to finally feel better. Believe yeah, it or after not. like a week and a half. I started feeling better, 
and then we recorded. And it wasn't the recording. It was just it, coincidence. But later that evening, I started feeling kind of bad again. And the next day, it was just like, ugh, I was dead again. And you can hear it now more even with more congestion. So, listeners, I apologize if I sound a little congested tonight. But um, I'm still just trying to get over this virus. I feel a lot better. Well, that's good. I don't sound great, but I feel significantly better. I think you'll sound okay. I think we'll be fine. Yeah. Well, before we launch into the long-awaited continuation of our history of Mexico, we have some listener feedback. This week in listener feedback. So, uh, this week we have a a lovely message from uh, Dino. Uh, And Dino recently found the podcast, uh, really enjoys Nerds on History, enjoyed very much our episode where Sarah, our Nerds on Film uh, co-host, came on and uh, was on our uh, our episode about the you know projections of the future and what the future may have been like, the perceptions of what it would have been. Uh, I Want My Hoverboard is the episode. For those of you who haven't had a chance to listen to it, go back. It was a great episode. Yeah, it was back in November, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was an er- earlier episode, yeah. And uh, he really enjoyed when Sarah was talking all about how the parallels between ancient Rome and the United States are running really side by side with one another. And the collapse and fall of the Roman Empire can really be seen as a warning uh, to what America could eventually end up in, in quite a situation with. And sure. uh, being that he is a, a uh, double major at the Arcadia University in uh, Glenside, Pennsylvania, uh, in both history and political science, I take that as quite a compliment. Uh, Dino, thank yeah. you very much uh, for agreeing with us and uh, being uh, very entertained and, and educated at the same time. We have a lot of fun here at, uh, at Nerds on History, and uh, Sarah was just a great addition to that episode, and she added so much to the to the commentary. She certainly did. And, uh, and now Dino cool. had, has as well. So yeah. thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, next piece, this one uh, comes from Megan. Uh, and Megan uh, has recently had a, th- a fun three-hour drive from Sydney uh, to Canberra. I'm assuming those are in uh, Canberra. Uh, sorry, what? Canberra. Canberra, excuse me. Sydney to Canberra, uh, and that's, of course, in Australia. And she uh, she came to the uh, to the History Podcast first and then has made her way over to the Film Podcast as well and is enjoying uh, both of them. So uh, thank you very much, Megan, for reaching out to us. And uh, you have a little more specific commentary that I think we'll talk about more on the Nerds on Film Podcast because it's a little more specific to that one. Uh, but our last piece comes from Cam. And Cam has sent us uh, a few messages before, but this is very, very appropriate to the episode uh, because Cam is talking very much about a connection between the Philippines and Mexico. And uh, again, she has a very detailed uh, email. I can't really go into too much detail because we do have to get to the show tonight. However, uh, she was saying, and quite, quite interestingly enough, that Mexico really was the dominant force over the Philippines. Even though the Philippines were part of the Spanish Empire, it was in fact the Viceroy of Mexico who was exerting that authority and that influence because of the trade routes that were set up between them. Because it was just easier, obviously, to send uh, you know the trade ships between Mexico and uh, Manila than it would have been between you know Madrid and Manila. You know, sure. it, it makes more sense. And as such, there was a lot of cultural exchange that was going on uh even the the tradition of the quinceara you know is, is very much duplicated also in the philippines uh culture and that certain uh as she was saying certain foods have also come on over and back and forth and, and across the way uh there's a mexican drink uh called champarado 
and this drink crossed over to the Philippines, uh, where the Filipinos then took this concept of kind of this chocolate drink and turned it into more of like a chocolate rice porridge, like a like, like rice pudding, really, that's, uh, that's then eaten as kind of like a, a breakfast meal. What is this called? Champorado. That sounds delicious. Uh, and then on the other hand, there were Mexican sailors who also tasted the palm wine of the Philippines, uh, a drink called tuba, and they took this back with them to Mexico, where tuba is also drinking now. So it's, it's neat. You know, there's a lot of uh, parallels that can be drawn between the two cultures and societies as they developed both out of Spanish colonial rule and into their own rights. Yeah, that is very interesting. So, Cam, thank you very much, as always. We'd love to hear feedback from you. And, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for all of your feedback. We always enjoy hearing it, so please uh, make sure that you continue to do so. Can we mention that we got a donation this week? Oh, we did, and it was one of the best donations we've gotten so far. Yes, it was. It was from a gentleman who uh, just also followed us on Twitter, like, not a few minutes ago. And his name is Jeff. Jeff, thank you very much. Jeff has told us that the money that he has sent us may only be used for purchasing Hot Pockets. And so it shall be. Let the Hot Pockets be purchased. Yay, preservatives. Yay, preservatives, in the name of Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, uh, let's jump back into things, shall we? First, I think we need to reintroduce back to the show uh, my beloved wife, Martha. Hello. (laughs) Hi, hon. How you doing? Good. Tired, but good. I'm glad that we are finally getting to resolve what was unresolved last time, this history of Mexico. So Yeah, and you know, it, it just worked out that way. I got sick, and now I've made Martha sick. So Martha's kind of battling a sore throat. So thank you so much for being here. I know you're not feeling 100%, but I know you really wanted to finish this episode off with us, and I, I appreciate it very much. I know our listeners do, too. So, real quick, I just want to kind of recap where we left off last sure. time. Because we talked a lot about the formation of Mexico, we talked about the colonial period, and we talked about the transition from, you know, the vast majority of people in Mexico from being natives, from being the Indians, to being now Mexicans. And with that became this cultural identity that through, you know, revolution, through the, this, you know, the want and need to have independence, now they've become their own country. Uh, and like you said, they're now a national power, they're now an independent nation, and one of the few republics that exist on the earth at that point. Yeah, and um, unusual that in the Western Hemisphere, there were now, even in the North American continent, there were now two republics that were literally sharing a border with one another. Yeah, and, you know, all, of course, this all comes about when, you know, Spain essentially finally withdraws after a good amount of time of fighting. I mean, 18... 18- 08 and around then is when the the fight for independence really started but it wasn't until around 1821 um that you find the decision is let's leave let's get out of here spain is gone new spain is gone mexico is born and with that would come several other years of infighting before uh really you would have this first empire being created now this first mexican empire and that's kind of where we left off was just the end of that empire um was in 1828 uh, and that's when you found the conservative party now finally taking uh, control of Mexico, uh, and this being with the the appointment of Astiano Bustamante, uh, who would then serve as president of Mexico from 1830 to 1832. Gotcha. And again, a little bit later on as well. 
But this is now an interesting time for Mexico because now we're seeing it trying to define itself as a republic, or does it still kind of treat itself like an empire? It doesn't really know what to do. Even its rulers and leaders that come on in are still very much dictatorial, if you will, even well, though they have a constitution and they're trying to preserve uh, this, this sense of a republic. Right. And on top of that, we have to also remember that the other powers in Europe, even though the Spanish had given up on Mexico, there were still the French and the British who were both were looking to reclaim that land for themselves. Too. Absolutely. And now this fledgling America, who was starting to branch out more and more westward, who would eventually come to a head with this territory. Because when Spain withdrew after the Treaty of Cordoba, Spain pretty much signed off to Mexico all of its former territories held in North America. So everything pretty much west of Texas, more or less, right? Uh, New Mexico, Nevada, Colorado, California, Utah, Utah, uh, you yeah. know, and so on, uh, belonged to Mexico at this point. And so now you had another big event happening. Because keep in mind, well, Mexico is, is finally treating itself a little bit more like a republic and less like a monarchy. It's having a lot of troubles. It's trying to establish a rightful place of succession for leader after leader after leader. And uh, it's rife with all sorts of issues. And Bustamante, who, again, was a conservative member of the conservative party, he would lead from 1837 to 1841. Uh, you then find the appointment of a, uh, of a particular general who then seizes power by overthrowing Bustamante. Uh, and this is the very famous Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. And Santa Ana... Uh, was a dictator in all rights. Uh, he, he came to power by overthrowing the government. He preserved its constitution, but he made changes to it. And he made changes to it that essentially would keep him in power. Uh, he served as president 11 times. Uh, and so this was not something that was, you know, willed by the people. This is something that was manipulated and made to be by Santa Ana himself. And he would face some very serious insurgencies. Some of them would come from Yucatan in the south. Uh, others would become from the northern states. Uh, and with that, you actually find one of the most uh, notable uh, secessions from Mexico, and that, of course, being Texas. And this is, you know, an integral part of American history, because Texas existed as its own independent republic. For 11 years, I believe. Yeah, for 11 years. And it existed as its independence from Mexico, because it was considered part of that Mexican territory, as was abdicated by Spain. The thing is, though, Texas in the 1830s and in the 1840s was a very interesting place. It was home to Mexicans in the more southern portions of Texas, but the northern parts of Texas were being inhabited by now, uh, you know, immigrants from America. So these folks who were coming over from Europe, uh, who were trying to find a place for themselves, who were moving out westward now, because they were free and able to do so, simply wanted to have a place for themselves. And so many of them were moving in and feeling vulnerable because they didn't belong really anywhere. They didn't belong to the United States. And even though they were technically Mexican citizens, and they had signed over their, their rights to that, over 300 American settlers uh, would become Mexican citizens, Santa Ana was doing nothing to support them. Hmm. And you had raids going on from the Comanche, who were the local Plains Indians who were trying to fight for their own survival and compete with now uh, a westward movement of immigration into the, into the Americas. 
and they were performing, you know, raids and attacks on these on these settlers. Now, to the level that the settlers were claiming, we don't really know, and I don't think so. I mean, the history doesn't really support it. It doesn't seem like it was as big a problem as the settlers were making it out to be. But it was their big excuse for saying to Santa Ana and his Mexican government, you guys aren't protecting us, we don't want to be a part of you any longer, so we're going to leave and become our own independent territory. And they were using these raids that were, you know, in existence, but not nearly to the degree that they were saying as as their excuse for being able to leave. Yeah. yeah so One of those weird circumstances, because there were not many times, at least in my knowledge of American history, where we have territories breaking off to become their own country, essentially. I think it pretty much is Texas and California are the two territories from Mexico that actually did that. Yeah, exactly. And you'll find with Texas, though, it was a much more violent event. Uh, mm-hmm. And with this, you find uh, Santa Ana quite enraged and not wanting to to give up anything. He was quite the pompous um, blowhard, really. Uh, he was in the true kind of dict- dictatorial fashion, right? He was not to be uh, overdone by these, these uh, se- secessionists. And so he marches forward with an army, uh, and there's some very fierce and very very bloody fighting that goes on, including the loss of Santa Ana's leg. <laughs> now, why do you laugh, honey? For his leg, he has he had a burial with all, all military honors. For just the leg? Mm-hmm. For just, uh, like, he was buried as a high commander, you could say. <laughs> he had a very commanding leg. <laughs> I've seen pictures of it. I'm sure the cab was very, very muscular. <laughs> <laughs> Far more than the other leg. The other leg, yeah, would not have been the same situation. How would he survive without yeah, I know. only one leg? <laughs> they have to. Did they have uh, a sculptor try to make it out of wood, make his new leg out of wood to make it closely resemble the left leg as, <laughs> as much as possible? I can imagine that conversation <laughs> happening with the sculptor. No, 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 no. It must look exactly like it did before. <laughs> <laughs> the, the grain, the grain is all wrong. The hair flowed in this direction. Yes, good. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> this is what I'm looking for. Very good. Yes. The ankle. I did not have cankles. Why are you giving me the cankles? No, it is a pronounced ankle. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Again, I channel history sometimes. You know. <laughs> you know, eventually, though, Texas would be able to gain its its independence. And it was, a like I said, a very bloody fight. And, you know, there are some very famous stories that come from this, including the, the fall of the Alamo. You know, the Alamo is, is very much um, traditional in that sense of struggle for, for yeah. independence. Well, we, we remember it as a military massacre. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, there's two sides to every story, so... Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, these, it, well, that's a whole other topic. I mean, we could go off on a whole episode on... On the Alamo and what have you, so sure. we're not going to. Um, not to say that it's not important, but like I said, we just don't have time. We got a lot to cover. Sure, we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with that, though, you do find eventually, you know, Texas winning and kicking out uh, Santa Ana's army, and actually even taking him hostage and, and capturing him uh, before before the war was finally concluded, and the Republic of Texas was founded in 1836. And uh, as we get into 1836, who became president after Santa Ana was deposed? The person after him was uh, Benito Juarez. Benito Juarez, who plays an important role later on as well in history as we get to uh, another chapter of that. I find Benito Juarez's name interesting because uh, he is the reason why Mussolini's name is Benito. His parents deliberately named him after Benito Juarez because he was a leftist and he was a revolutionary. Yeah, exactly. And this was during the period of La, La Reforma, 
if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, before we get to Benito Juarez, uh, we have to talk about the the big event in between all of this, uh, which is the Mexican-American War. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, had enormous impact on both Mexico and America. If it wasn't for the outcome of this war, much of the Western United States would still quite possibly belong to Mexico. Uh, and we would have much larger borders than we do at the moment. Uh, and it would be a very different place. In fact, we may not even be living here if it wasn't for, for the outcome. That would be true, yeah, um, absolutely. And I think that the exchange probably went certainly both ways. But, you know, it was not a nice war. Not that there are any nice wars. But it was uh, it was a war that was very hurtful to the pride of Mexico and I think is largely due to the incompetence of Santa Ana. And he is seen as being this blunderer who made so many key mistakes that caused this uh, this animosity, which I think, honey, you might even agree, to some degree still exists a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does a lot. <laughs> well, we also have to remember that to take a quick little second to go back to why this even happened in the first yeah. place, right? This was an... Uh, an incident in history that was completely incited by the United States. Yes. I think back to my 7th grade and 8th grade, sorry, my 8th grade social studies class, and I remember w- one term that blares out, manifest destiny. Mm-hmm. Right? The idea that the Americans believed it was their right to colonize other lands in the same landmass as America and make it their own. Yeah. Right? And, and, and you had a situation where you had disputed territories... You had uh, American army detachments who were, you know, in this area who were then being attacked by the Mexican army who was also in the area. It could, you know, very well have been the other way around. It could have been incited by either party. I mean, they were in disputed territory. Of course you're going to have disputes in disputed territory. But that type of idea was used to sway the American people into supporting and justifying our endeavor to invade Mexico. Because America essentially losing in those battles was treated as a massacre. And Alamo, of course, yes. It reminds me very much of the way that the Boston Massacre was used to justify our independence from England. Because the Boston Massacre, as it is called, was not quite the massacre it was made out to be. It was not to the level and extent that was actually advertised and sent out in leaflets and pamphlets and in, posted in the papers. It was obviously not very pleasant. You're referring to the, the incident where the British soldiers quote-unquote opened fire yeah. on protesting citizens, and John Adams, of all people, got them acquitted of the crime. He did. He did indeed. Yeah. Uh, and he did so because it was incited largely by the mob. Right. And there was a lot of people throwing things at them, and there was a lot of fighting going on. And eventually there was going to be a situation, because of all the taunting and bantering going back and forth, where it was going to get confused, and quite possibly shots were going to be fired. And that's exactly what happened. And it was used as a way to justify, you know, and then a means to an end, which was important, and we needed to have our independence. But I also see this as being somewhat similar. Here we're using this as an excuse for our own agendas, which is to claim as much territory west of the Mississippi as possible. Well, it's propaganda. Yeah. Let's call it what it is. And it's been used to justify numerous crises throughout our country's history. That being said, moving it back to the opposite perspective, which is, of course, from the Mexican perspective here. Yeah. I could talk uh, about the pro- how people see the Mexican-American War in Mexico. They see it as 
unjust, but not only not only in the part of the American government wanted to invade, but like you said, Eric, um, because of Santana, he really didn't care. He just tried to save the land and all that, but when he he didn't even fight for it, nothing really. There was no passion behind his words, his actions about it. So, uh, one of the main um, stories. That we remember though is when the American army reached Mexico City in um, La Batalla de los Niños Deudes or the Battle of the Child Heroes. Yes, and this uh, is this is very this is actually used almost kind of how the Boston Massacre was used and how the the so-called massacre that started the Mexican-American War is used in America and seen in America. This is very much the same kind of thing, but from the Mexican perspective. It was in the castle of Chapultepec in the heart of the city. At that moment, it was used like in a military academy, you could mm-hmm. say. There were cadets living there. So at the time the American army reached the castle, there were about nine cadets. All were really pretty young. I think the oldest one was about 18 and the youngest was 12. Wow. And they are very honored in Mexico. They are very... We see them as heroes, and especially one of them called Juan Escutia. His story goes that when he saw the American army winning, he wrapped himself in the Mexican um, flag so he wouldn't be captured or stepped on. He jumped to his death. He rather died protecting the flag than letting a foreign army destroy it. Yeah. Wow. And just to set some context for this, uh, the Mexican-American War was fought in two very important theaters. One of them was, of course, out in the western United States, but the other was a direct attack on Mexico City, which is what you're talking about. Yes. And this was done with 70 ships, uh, an enormous American armada, pretty much our entire naval fleet in the Gulf of Mexico and much of, of the southern United States. And it was brought right to Veracruz, where they laid siege to the city for 12 days, uh, constant bombardment, until eventually they just they, they couldn't take it any longer. There wasn't going to be any Veracruz left unless they, they gave up. Uh, and so the ships that came in, and just a few days later, they had made it all the way to Mexico City, uh, where you have a, a very quick battle, really. I mean, it, it, the siege of Mexico City was, was very short. It didn't take long. Um, to the point where they had these young children, these cadets out there, trying to defend and fight and, and lose their lives. And what I find very interesting, though, is that we occupied Mexico City. Hmm. And that essentially led to the end of the Mexican-American War. And the treaty, in air quotes, that would eventually give America Alta California, correct? Right. Yeah. I will say, though, that the Treaty of uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo... Am I saying that right? Yeah. Okay, close Hidalgo, but yeah, sure. Yes. Thank you. Uh, we all established this in the previous episode. Guadalupe right? Hidalgo. Hidalgo, excuse me. <laughs> um, I know, it's only been 10 years that Martha and I have been together, and I still can't pronounce anything in Spanish. It's fine. Uh, it was actually not that unfair of a treaty. And so let me let me explain what that means. What I mean by that, I should say. America could very easily have gone in and said, all right, here it is. You're going to give us everything we want. You're going to get absolutely nothing. We're going to take everything that we need, and we're going to leave. Goodbye. They didn't do that. They could have. They could have left Mexico in complete and total shambles. 
what the treaty did state was obviously an enormous amount of Northern Territories was going to be handed over to the United States. And with that, honestly, Santa Ana was probably like, you know what? Fine. Take it. I don't want any more. Everyone's going to just end up doing what Texas did anyway. You can deal with the problem now. Uh, and they ended up buying it from Mexico for $15 million. So it wasn't just taking the territory. They did exchange currency. Uh, so they did give Mexico something. Now, was the, the total value of all that land worth $15 million? I'm not going to debate that. I'm just saying the fact that they did at least give some money. Well, $15 million in this time period would be the equivalent of billions of yeah, dollars today. It was a lot of money, certainly. Um, it would also give full citizenship and voting rights and protection to all people who were living in those territories. Yeah. How much that was enforced, however, well, yeah. that's a whole other topic. I think it's also important to remember that the Louisiana Purchase, which had taken place only 40 years beforehand, yeah, was made for $7 million. So, right. I mean, just to give you some perspective right. on it. Uh, but we also absorbed over $3 million in debt from Mexico as well, to put an end to all this and just and, and, and have it be what it is. How does Mexico see it, though? <laughs> Unjust, unfair. The land was taken away from the government very, very mean. Very forcefully. Forcefully. Yeah. Uh, there's still a lot of people heard about it. I know it's been many, many years, but if you really go around, uh, like from where from from Mex- in Mexico, there's still people with a lot of resentment. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's understandable. But what I would say, though, because like I said, there was a lot of positives that did eventually come from this. Obviously, America gained this territory that would become an integral part of America, but Mexico also gained an understanding that. If it was going to be able to stand up for itself, it was going to have to do two very important things. One of those was get rid of its dictator. And this would lead to the fall of Santa Ana. This would be uh, what would eventually lead to him uh, being ousted. And the other thing was La, La Reforma. I mean, this was an opportunity to see, yes, here was this rapidly industrialized nation that came in and was able to overwhelm us quickly. If we don't industrialize, if we don't become uh, a power, we're going to be picked on. We're going to be bullied. And that's not what we're all about. We fought so hard for our independence. We did everything we could to make ourselves uh, the rightful nation that we are. We have to keep it. And we can't be, you know, pushed around. And, you know, so with that, definitely came that that sense of of rebirth, if you will, or reform. Yeah, and also... Yeah, after the war, there was tension between the two governments, but after a while, it kind of subsided and became more of a, not friendship, but more of an understanding of each other. There were more communication between the two governments. Sure. More, it wasn't more of an open border at that time. And for 60 years, Mexico and America would become very close economic partners to the point where whenever America was experiencing depression, Mexico would directly do so as well. Uh, And the amount of political stability and the amount of economic growth that happens during, you know, the reform period um, is largely due to a renewed relationship with America. Maybe not, like you said, a friendship, but at least a relationship and a partnership that would that would happen with with Mexico's newest leaders, like 
after Santa Ana was deposed, there was, uh, I mean, what, what happened? The, the Constitution was, when, what was the state of that? What was the state of the political nature of the country at this point? Well, 1855 is when you find a moderate uh, liberal come into power, Ignacio uh, Comonfort. And he becomes this, uh, this president who would, after the revolution, after deposing Santa Ana and having him killed and taken care of, um, now sets up for a real opportunity of, you know, a democratically elected president. Gotcha. So he was kind of an interim dictator, but he was never intending to keep power. Yeah, he, he was a colonel in the army. He saw the opportunity. He saw that Santa Ana was essentially on his way out already anyhow and used it as an opportunity to, to go ahead and seize power. Uh, and with that, then you have this, this period of reformation and this war of reformation that would take place um, because eventually they want to get rid of him too because they would like very much to have an actual democratically elected president. And so he didn't lay down the power. He, he didn't lay it down, but ironically, he, he really did make it so that um, there was going to be an opportunity to do that. Uh, and what he also did, though, which was a pretty large contribution, um, by setting up the second kind of federal republic of Mexico, he creates this new constitution, a constitution of 1857, that was highly, highly restricted on the Catholic Church's traditional powers. Um, its land holdings, its revenues, its ability to hold power and direction over the way the education was executed in the country. Mm -hmm. um, he was very much uh, in favor of kind of religious freedom. So he was this, this moderate who was still, though... <sighs> Don't not sounds very influenced by American ideology. Very much so, but very much still wanting to kind of hold on to power. Uh, and you find that... Uh, to many people, this constitution just wasn't acceptable. And many conservatives and uh, actual members of the clergy plotted a revolution against him. Uh, and so you'll find that, that he would also eventually kind of be uh, forced out. And uh, as we mentioned last episode, this is a, or not episode, but in part one, uh, that this is still a point where the Catholic Church is the official religion of Mexico. Correct. Yes. It is the official religion of Mexico. That would change eventually. Of course. Uh, but it was still an official religion. Uh, and then you find that this leads, of course, to, to a war of reform after the, uh, the, the coup that ends up happening and taking out, um, taking out poor little Ignacio. So uh, you, you find now that uh, the liberals and conservatives were literally locked in a battle, in a fight for the country. Um, we talk about it in sense of, you know, in the media, we talk about, you know, uh, how CNN and Fox News are, are, are fighting against each other. These guys were actually laying down lives and, and you know, shooting each other and taking their lives for, for battle of this country. Um, but eventually, we would have that liberal victory. And with that, we would actually have a, a democratically elected president, and that being Benito Juarez. And he took office at what point in time? In 1861. 1861. Okay. Yes. Well, he didn't have a very good presidency, did he? Because he not his first one, anyway. No, not his first. No, not, not his first presidency, right? Yeah. He was kind of the Grover Cleveland of Mexico. He had two. <laughs> he, he had a non two non consecutive presidential terms. Well, here's why. Because as we had laid down earlier, we mentioned that other European powers were trying to control the Mexican region as well. So, uh, and that would include the French. So the French had tried to uh, take over, and that led to. A battle which uh, in Spanish, of course, would be El Día de Batalla de Puebla, uh, or just the Battle of Pueblo, as we refer to it in uh, American history. 
But um, sorry, Brian, let me cut you there. But before you're gonna cut Brian, (laughs) I've wanted to cut him so many times on this episode. Okay, that's fine. Go ahead. Um, before um, Cinco de Mayo. In the Batalla de Puebla came the Battle of Los Pasteles, or called the Battle of the Pastries. The Battle of the Pastries. By far, <laughs> the tastiest of all wars fought in Mexico. So, did was it just both sides were flinging pan dulce at one another? <laughs> uh, about the time where Santana was kicked off power and all this reform... The battle actually started because, like, there were marches going on in the uh, cities, in the city, and one of them ended pretty bad, destroying this, like, French pastry store that caused a lot of damage. So the owner told the French government, like, oh, this Mexicans cost me so much and stuff like that, that... France actually told Mexico that they had to pay them back or they will have to stay for the consequences. And uh, that led to the Battle of Puebla, is what you're saying? Uh, yes, the, that led to the Battle of Puebla. So it was and, a battle over uh, pastries? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Those damn baguettes are extremely expensive. <laughs> but uh, like with still the Battle of the Pastries, actually France didn't go alone. He, they won with Spain again and Great Britain. Yeah, there you go. To attack Mexico, and then one of the main battles was the attack on El, on Fuerte, the fort of San Juan de Ulua, in Veracruz in 1838. But I guess later Spain and Britain didn't see anything out of it, so they backed off. So in 1861, in that battle, Mexico lost a lot of. It's force because of all that revolt. That's what led to the Cinco de Mayo. Gotcha. Gotcha. See, to, to me, what what is going on in my my mind is a very Monty Python like sketch. <laughs> if you can imagine the, the countries of France, Spain, and Great Britain as human beings, they you will not believe this. I was just in Mexico and they they, they destroy one of my pastry shops. Oh, that's absolutely <laughs> terrible. Are you serious? That just pisses me. Right off. We need to go. We need to go get these people back. <laughs> was any tea lost? There was tons of tea. No, I can't even do the accent again. But anyway, just imagine this. <laughs> there whole... will be blood. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There will and I imagine Daniel Day Lewis playing all three characters. <laughs> Mexico in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s was just crazy. I mean, you had so much going on. You had, you know, like you said, this battle of the pastries. Uh, you had the Mexican American War. You had these battle after battle after battle of trying to find a president who can actually just be elected and be a president. Uh, and then right when they get one, then they get right when they finally get a good one, freaking France comes and ruins it all. <laughs> and they, and, but then again, not so much because even though we, they were, wasn't, weren't they also outnumbered too? Weren't the uh, Mexican army outnumbered? Well, let's get, let, let's yes. dial it. In for a second. We're talking now about the Battle of Puebla. Battle of Puebla, which of course took place on May 5th. Right, so we're back in the 1860s now. Mm -hmm. We're talking about Puebla. Yes. This is the, as Martha was alluding to earlier, 
this is, of course, the famous Cinco de Mayo, the, what actually represents the national holiday of Cinco de Mayo. Right. And this was this was in the state of Puebla, correct? Yes. And that's really where it's more a national holiday than it is anywhere else in Mexico. Yes. They it, really don't, uh, we really don't celebrate it other than in Puebla with a small, like, parade and stuff like that. Well, hasn't yeah. Mexico City kind of picked it up a little bit, though, too? Don't they, don't they do a parade in Mexico City now? Uh, no. I that's after oh. the independence. Oh, gotcha. okay. Which, of course, is celebrated on September 16th. Right. Yes. Um, well, I know that. No, I know. <laughs> well, it's, it's important because, you know, a lot of Americans just use Cinco de Mayo as an excuse to drink. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> and, no, I'm just getting that it is a military victory, not a... Yeah, we have talked about this before, though. Yeah. That the, the Chicano culture in America has taken Cinco de Mayo and owned it as a holiday, which is absolutely within their right. Why not? Of course. It, it's a great way of, of owning a part of Mexican heritage and bringing that and keeping that alive in America. Um, but it is very interesting, though, that, that Americans now have assumed this uh, this belief that it is the only celebration that's ever held in Mexico. And that, you know, it is somehow... <laughs> it's a very misguided view, obviously. Absolutely. Well, of course it is. I mean, but uh, if you think about it, we don't celebrate Bastille Day in America. And we don't, um, right. you know, we don't celebrate a lot of other... Uh, traditional holidays that are certainly politically driven and motivated in other countries. Exactly. So the fact that we celebrate Cinco de Mayo at all is actually kind of cool. But let's talk about the battle. Let's talk about the Battle of Puebla for a moment, because it is a pretty incredible story. Here's Napoleon III, uh, Emperor of France and uh, relative of the famous Napoleon Bonaparte, trying to reclaim some of his... Uh, was his uncle? What was the relationship between the two of them? Yes, Napoleon III was the nephew of Napoleon I. <laughs> Interestingly enough, he was considered the first president of France, um, but then he also <laughs> declared himself uh, emperor again. Uh, so Kind of like his uncle. And the French people were suddenly were oddly surprised. So go figure. Yeah. Uh, this, is, um, this is outrageous. I cannot right. believe this. It's as if this had never happened before. Oh, wait. Never mind. Continue. Exactly. Um, so, of course, it was his idea to really push forward the the Battle of, of Puebla. Yeah, and of course, the Battle of Puebla did not go well for the French at all. Uh, they were outnumbered, and they were outnumbered by farmers who had pitchforks and machetes and not much else to defend themselves with. Um, but they were able to repel the superior French force. Um, unfortunately, however, it wasn't enough. The French would come back, and they would come back in much greater force, and they would overthrow Mexico. Uh, and in doing so, they would install their own uh, emperor, who was Austrian. He was Austrian. He was from the, the House of Habsburg-Lorraine. Yes, his name was Maximilian I, Archduke. In fact, actually, there were rumors that Maximilian I was the product of an extramarital affair between his mother and the first cousin, his first cousin, who was, in fact, Napoleon II. So he was cousins with Napoleon II, who was, of course, the son of Napoleon Bonaparte. Well, so, that makes sense. That's so, what everyone was doing in Europe at the time. They were giving power to their cousins and you know, yeah. relatives. So he was interrelated, he was, was basically a, a Bonaparte. And, However, uh, a very different Bonaparte than one might expect. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he spearheaded the Second Mexican Empire, declared himself Emperor of Mexico, and uh, he was believing he was taking over what was Augustine I's uh you know what he had was left as unfinished business basically but so much more than that and I, I find the more that i read about him the more interesting he a character he is him and his wife uh, uh carletta who carlota yes carlota carlota oh, okay yes i believe we've already established <laughs> the fact that i can't say any of the names and our listeners already know but thank you um carlota 
Uh, did you like that? Yeah. That was good. Mm-hmm. I was channeling a little bit of um, Ricardo Montalban for a moment. <laughs> it is very cold in space. I don't think she ever said that. Okay. <laughs> but I know Ricardo Montalban did. Anyhow. Uh, I find that these two figures are very interesting because they are very much liberal, very liberal in their rule. Uh, They were very concerned with the poverty that was going on all around them, with the economic problems of the country. They were concerned with the lack of education, and they were deeply concerned about the native population. They were worried that they were being treated like second-class citizens. And they were trying to actually put forward a lot of favorable, very you know, good changes uh, that the liberal parties uh, who are, of course, being ruled over would have seen as actually being pretty fair. And it's kind of sad, though, because eventually they would be deposed uh, because they were, you know, very unpopular with their liberal views to the conservatives in the country. And they were, of course, you know, rulers, a monarch. So the liberals, no matter how much they might align with some of their, you know, uh, actions, couldn't possibly tolerate having a monarchy in control. Sure. And so they were screwed no matter yeah. what they did. Well, I mean, this is a point in time where the world is starting to become weary of monarchy yeah. in general, right? Because not around the same time, Britain is really starting to see the power shift go more, far more toward parliament than it is the royal family. And they were in kind of a pickle, though, because if they had gone ahead and essentially stepped down in terms of power, maybe just kept the monarchy there just for show... And, and, you know, again, had another president... Like and, a constitutional monarchy. Yeah, basically. essentially created a constitutional monarchy. They very well could have been a positive and guiding force to a very, very fractured Mexico who, leading up to all of this, who had finally gotten somewhere in terms of, of getting somebody who they can keep in power, now are in total state of turmoil. And I really think that if they had played their cards better, if they'd been smarter about what they uh, really should have ended up doing they could have been around and helping out. And we could today have a emperor and or king or queen of Mexico. Yeah, emperor and empress, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's sad because they eventually ended up getting, you know, their heads cut off. <laughs> this is awful, yeah. And it's a bummer because, you know, they weren't that bad. They were trying, at least, you know. I do find it very interesting, though, that the in the Summer Olympics a few years back, oh, no, not the Summer Olympics, it was the Winter Olympics, that the uh, only skier... <laughs> on the Mexican team was from Austria. <laughs> Connection? Probably not. But <laughs> it did remind me of that. Yeah. Martha and I had a lengthy conversation about this while watching the Winter Olympics. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, I digress. It's okay. I'm still uh, getting over my cold. So now That's we have Juarez 2, Electric Boogaloo. And, uh, he, <laughs> and Damn, he, too bad we already have a title for the episode, because that would have been a great one. <laughs> <laughs> Can we say... Uh, okay. So, uh, anyway. So we have we have Juarez's second presidency, reestablishing the United Mexican States. Right, in 1867. Yeah. You find that there's finally this, this restitution. And was the old constitution uh, reinstated as well? Essentially, yeah, but yes. it, a lot of changes were were still under the works. Yes, as as was, were. you know, not unexpected. I feel like this period of time, this period of sixty years, Mexico was pretty much in a state of political flux. You know, when does Mexico finally have a, an ongoing m- period of peace? That's what I want to know. When does it get to that? <laughs> does does it get to that? Mm. We're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> yes and no. Okay, so let's fast forward to what's the next big event in Mexican history that that has a rippling 
effect on the culture and on the politics of this country? Uh, the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz. Okay, That's and when right. did he come to power? Uh, that was in 1876. Okay, ironically, now, the centennial of the United States. Okay. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. You know, right. Funny coincidences. Yes. Uh, Parvisio Diaz was a very, very interesting character, and he reminds me a lot of the situation in Egypt with Mubarak. Okay. No, really, it does. I know. I bring everything back to Egypt, but it, it, it really does because here we have somebody who essentially took power took control by rigging elections and making sure that he got where he wanted to be uh, and then would continue to rule the country for for several years to come his his reign would officially end in 1910 with the beginning of the revolution so we have this period of you know over 30 years where he is in charge and with this though we find a very interesting side effect because rather than the country suffering under this dictatorship it actually kind of goes the other way and i relate this to mubarak because when mubarak came to power in egypt he did a lot for the country he wasn't democratically elected keep in mind at least he he pertained this this aura that that's exactly what was going on by rigging elections and making sure that he was always in power but what mubarak did for egypt was reinvent the entire tourism industry uh, because throughout the 1970s and 80s, he would allow for a degree of Western influence and tourism that was pretty much unheard of in that part of the world at that time. So essentially, with Diaz, he was doing similar acts, but he was also still doing things that were detrimental to, like he was still controlling the government. Of course, still- absolutely. He he ruled with an iron fist. He he killed off his enemies. Uh, he made sure that the elections were rigged. Uh, he made sure that he stayed in power, and those who were closest to him were wealthy and powerful as well. But what ended up happening because of this period of stability is you found this boom in economic growth. You found that you know there was a huge amount of industrialization going on in the country. You found that education was completely and totally reworked. Um, the population jumped from 11 million people at the beginning of his reign to 15 million people by the end. Okay. So that's a huge increase in population in a pretty short period of time. That's almost a 33% increase. Yeah. It cut down dramatically on the infant mortality rate. Uh, It increased, uh, just in general, a better standard of living. And you'll find that the economy and and everything was getting better, but it still wasn't good enough. Because there was no true democracy here. And there were people being exploited, particularly people down in the south of Mexico in Yucatan. And that's where one of the principal uprisings uh, happens, And we see this in Mexican history over and over again. The southern states and the further northern states are oftentimes ignored. And it leads to political unrest because the people themselves are not feeling like they're gotcha. they're given that sense of liberty. And is this where, we inter- where the world finally gets to know Mr. Pancho Villa? That is exactly what happens. Cool. And, uh, of course, Zapata as well, who, who would come to the stage as one being one of the other most iconic leaders in the Mexican Revolution. Yes, known for his very imposing shoes. Very. (laughs) (laughs) So eventually, after all of these years in power, Diaz decides that he's going to run for election again. And then what happens? Uh, Well, in 1910, Porfirio Diaz wanted to run for re-election. But this time he went against somebody stronger, you could say, more... Younger, more feral. And more... In love with this country, yeah. wanted and the, to stop all of this, and that was Francisco Madero. And Madero was loved by the people. He he was a strong favorite. They knew that if there was going to be an election, he was going to be elected. Seeing Madero, 
like being popular with the people and everything, he, uh, Diaz actually took him captive for a couple of days. But after Madero was able to get out of prison, he called on the people to that it's time for rebel and it's time to put an end to this dictatorship. And and not just that. Keep in mind, there was a there was an election held, as there was always an election held, and only 100 votes went to the opponent. Wow. Out of a population of 15 million. So in other words, it was clearly a rigged election, even though the, the population clearly wanted Madero. You're familiar with the nose on your face? Yes. It was that clear. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, now you have the situation where in the country there's all this animosity towards Diaz because these people in the south and these people in the north want to rise up against him. And so you have Pancho Villa, the famous Pancho Villa in the north, who was also somewhat antagonistic towards the American army, and is very notorious for that. And then you have Emiliano Zabata in the south in the Yucatan, who rises his forces there. Um, all being kind of cheered along, led along, if you will, uh, by the rightful winner of the election, uh, Madero, who, as we've established, was, you know, imprisoned and now has finally been released. And now it's very clear because of these election results that he should be the rightful winner. And they, they go to war. And it's, again, horrible, nasty, disgusting, awful fighting. There are terrible massacres being performed around the entire country. And it is a, a period of great fear for the people of Mexico. They don't really know exactly what's going to happen now. I mean, they're, they're so used to this political turmoil, but this is some of the worst fighting that they've seen. And with that, in a year later, in 1911, finally Diaz is ousted. He's gone. He's exiled. He's sent off to France. Uh, and now we have a situation where who's going to be in control? And obviously, that who was rightfully elected, Madero, uh, does a exactly that and he becomes president uh, and he decides that he's only going to serve for a single term that in uh, the truest of the liberalist views in Mexico at that time that's what they wanted they wanted someone who would just serve one term and it makes sense because look at Diaz who served for all those years one term after another after another after another after a rigged election so here now we have this great reformer who goes about and he reinstitutes the Constitution and makes voting legal again and does all the things that generally the people would like him to have done, but he would also be assassinated, killed in 1913, and then you have one of uh, Diaz's former generals, Huerta, uh, taking over now in a coup that was led and supported, well not led, but it was certainly supported largely by the U.S. ambassador to Mexico at the time, Henry Lane Wilson. Uh, who was not under Woodrow Wilson's direction, however. This was something that he came up with on his own. He decided that he wanted to support the the traditional Diaz power because they had such a, a great relationship with the Diaz government and the United States government that they, they wanted to keep that element still in existence. Um, he would eventually also be ousted, taken out in 1915. And then we have another of the former revolutionary generals coming in and assuming control in 1917. Uh, what's interesting, though, and which possibly led to some of the return to stability was in 1917, you had the First World War going on. And America was observing a lot of this going on, seeing its own involvement in the revolution and thinking, 
we need to just put an end to it. Maybe we should gear up and get ready for war. Well, Germany saw this, wanted to take advantage of it, and sends a very famous telegram, the Zimmermann telegram. And in this, you find Germany uh, you know, trying to essentially get Mexico to agree to go to war against America so that America now has to fight a, a two-front war and cannot provide the kind of support that it would need to the allies in Europe. Uh, and, of course, Mexico looked at this and said, this is stupid. Why would we do this? You know, we would be greatly outnumbered. What would be the point of us... Uh, taking on such a foolish thing, uh, and they decided to stay out of the fighting. And as such, America was now called up and sending its forces over to Europe to fight the Germans. Crazy time again. You know, we have this another period of about seven years where there's just all this total anarchy. There's some of the worst fighting of all uh, taking place. And of course, there's the notorious individuals who come out of this, right, who are both heroes and also, uh, depending on which side you're looking at, also villainous kind of, right, because Pancho Villa definitely has a, a very notorious nature in America. Uh, and it's so, honestly, if you really look at the history, maybe not quite as justified, because I see Pancho Villa as being this revolutionary trying to fight for freedom in his country, maybe with some pretty extreme methods. He was definitely a radical. We, we can see that, but it got results done, and that's what they needed for the country. But he was looking over the border into America, essentially for arms. He was looking for, for bullets. And there were these nasty shopkeepers uh, who were giving him fake ammunition. And so he's out there with his, his people fighting with bullets that don't fire. I'd be kind of pissed off if that happened. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, we could do almost an entire episode on just Pancho Villa. Oh, absolutely. And it may warrant one definitely in the future. But, you know, that definitely, of course, led to a lot of that, that those, you know, cross-border raids that were going on with Pancho Villa. And it's just, to me, spending an entire year looking for him and spending American resources and 12,000 American troops sending them into Mexico to try to find this guy, uh, was it worth it? I mean, they got his head, but was it really worth it? No. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I think it was just kind of a waste. A waste what, of time. what was the impact it had in America at that point? It was it minimal. Was minimal. It was bragging rights, basically, is what it yeah, was. Yeah, exactly. And then they couldn't keep up with it anymore because the war in Europe happened, so they had to bugger all the troops off over there. Exactly. Yeah. So then when do we get to peace? <laughs> We're getting there. We're getting there. Because we have, again, another period of just post this revolution where you have a lot of different people positioning for control of the country again, but you have this animosity towards the church that for a while was present and there, and then the other uh, side of it, the more conservative side, was pro-church again, and now you have these more liberals in charge. You have this period in the 1920s where if you were openly in support of the church and the church's power, essentially, uh, you were an enemy. And there were massacres performed against clergy, against... Uh, you know, the, the families associated with the church, uh, against church landholders, uh, all these folks who were hardline supporters of the Catholic Church, they were being hung by telegraph poles. They were being massacred uh, all throughout the country. And it was um, a period called the Cristillo War. Cristero. You say it. Go over it again. Do it over again. The Cristero War? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, between 1926 and 1929. And, <laughs> and it ends in 29 because the world economy just takes a dump, basically. That was probably one of the best things that could have happened for Mexico. <laughs> really? Yeah, really. Uh, and what it leads to is the desire for something stronger, something more concrete. 
with that, you have the National Mexican Party, uh, which is one of the first organized political parties in Mexico to come about um, that is now able to, in a much more traditional and democratic fashion, become uh, a, a real driving force. The problem is they were also super conservative. So you would you know, later have these folks reorganize themselves into one of Mexico's longest standing political parties, which I know is PRI today, P-R-I. I, I don't know what it stands for. It stands for Partido Revolucionario Institucional. Which means? Institutional Revolutionary Party. Right. And they would essentially be in control of the country, although more or less democratically elected and through a more peaceful and prosperous time um, for, for quite a few years to come. Yeah. Well, where, where, where's your hesitation? Oh, well, it's more seen as a dictatorship because jumping a lot in, into history, El PRI has been in power like about 70 years when Vicente Fox from another um, political party got elected it was like everybody thought it was going to be the end of it and all of this there was a big party whatever whatever but now that this new president came to power it's back to the same old thing and with El Puri in power it was one of the worst times for Mexico so they were democratically elected but it was one party for just years and years and years and years and years years, yes so but there was quite a bit of stability in the early part certainly through up until the 1960s it really wasn't until like the 1970s and 80s that you found a huge squandering of mexico's resources by the heavy corruption within the party because initially it started out as being a hyper conservative but very stable political organization Mm -hmm. that was a benefit to Mexico. It finally kind of brought it back into the modern age. And with that, it even provided a, a whole revamped military that would you know, lead um, troops in the battle on the side of the Allies during the Second World War. Your grandfather uh, was a paratrooper in, in the Mexican army, and while he never saw combat, um, he did serve, serve the country in a much more industrialized and modern army. So it really wasn't until much later, though, in the 70s and 80s, that a lot of their corruption became far more rampant and problematic. And because of everything going on with uh, the drug trade coming out of Colombia, Mexico really started to have its more serious problems, more serious problems that we kind of see today. Yeah. Going back to the allies, I just want to give a quick side note on El Escuadrón 201. Which Uh, is in English? Squadron? Squadron Squadron 201. Mm-hmm. is from Las Fuerzas Aéreas Mexicanas, Mexican Air Forces, were sent to fight on the side of the Allies because in 1942, a Mexican submarine was bombarded by um, a German, a German submarine, and that's where Mexico decides to declare war on Germany. Hmm. And El Squadron 201 was really, it's really noted, at least in Mexico, it was known as very brave people then really never saw they saw compact but they were more of like um protecting the other planes to get to their place mm-hmm. uh i don't um they were an escort escort but they were also known as being as brave as the kamikaze mm-hmm. when they were n- there were no other way out they were known to just crash their planes 
to into the enemy and to try to just damage them in whatever way they uh, could because yeah. they had no other way of, of doing it. And here they yeah. were known or are known as the Aztec Eagles. Oh, cool! And a lot of them actually they had a very great military career here in the United States. Many of them stayed behind and served in the U.S. Army. Hmm. There are many, many of them became instructors, so like many of them were very highly decorated, fought in other wars. And your grandfather, you know, being in the military for as long as he was, he has a, a very deep tradition with the, the modern Mexican military today. And didn't some of your family actually fight in the Revolutionary War? I, I thought you told me that your great-grandmother... Uh, my, yes. Your uh, great-grandmother fought in the Revolutionary actually, War. Actually, my grandfather was born in a train. Yeah. <laughs> in a During train. an wow. attack, wasn't it? Yeah. My grandmother was giving birth to him. Wow. On the train. Wow. That ambulance that you hear in the background is, is not a recreation <laughs> of the ambulance that was sent out after her grandmother. Um, it is simply background noise. People However, are probably wondering what the heck's been going on because we, we can hear crickets at some point. <laughs> I don't know if you guys can actually it's hear It's a lively them. night in California. <laughs> uh, and then the ambulance and it's just like... Did you guys have like a forest fire or something <laughs> in the middle of? Are you, are you guys recording while camping or something? Well, you know, listeners, I know that the the last part of this was was a little bit rushed, but we were starting to run out of time, and we know there's just there's so much to talk about, and it is a fascinating topic, and it certainly deserves your attention to go further into and read more about. And there is a lot that has been written on the history of Mexico, and and it's just so interesting because. In doing my research for this episode, I, I discovered so many things that I just didn't know about. Little tidbits and gems and little things that maybe I had heard in the past, but I never really absorbed. And so I encourage listeners yeah. to go out there and, and do some additional research on the topic. For me, listening to this, I mean, I knew some of these details over and over again. I could, And I now remember, after hearing all these things over and over again, just how tumultuous the history is. Yeah. You know, I said that the last episode that political history is very rich. And it is very rich, but... It's rich because it's been so tumultuous. It's uh, there's war upon war upon war. I mean, because to, go ahead. To me, I really think that what sum, sums it up is just struggle and challenge. You know, yeah. Mexico has always struggled and has always still been able to come out as a as a powerful country as a result of it. No matter how many times there was political intrigue, coups, revolutions, corruption. Mexico has still always managed to, to come out, and I think it's a real testament to the people of Mexico. That's what I was going to say next. Yeah, yeah. I could kind of tell. I, yeah. I, I, we had that brain twin moment for a yeah. second there. This is a such a resilient culture. Yeah, and such a resilient that you no know, people who are hell bent on having rights equal for everybody. Right? Yeah, and on a democratic culture. And the current state of Mexico, you know, like we always say, the history is always on, ongoing, and I feel because of the serious, serious problems that are going on in Mexico in terms of the drug trafficking. And keep in mind, folks, when you think about drugs in Mexico, drugs are moving through Mexico more than they're actually being made in Mexico. Most of those drugs are coming from South America. The vast majority of them are coming from the heavily, heavily entrenched Colombian drug trade that has been around for a very long time. And all of this corruption that's going on and all of these drug lords are, are taking advantage of it are becoming wealthy because of these literal drug trafficking, moving the drugs through and moving them to the United States in, in most cases because it's the closest place to, to sell the drugs off to. It's sad, and I hope that Mexico has a new reform. And I know that just recently one of Mexico's biggest drug lords was just taken down, that the Mexican government is very much committed to 
at least currently has been in the past few years, taking out the drug lords, getting rid of that element of corruption within their government. I'm sure they'll still have all the other political corruption that everyone in the world deals with, but to get rid of the drug lords now, um, I think would breathe brand new, fresh air into Mexico. And that's a whole other can of worms, too, because these, these cartels are so powerful and have so much money that... Oh, they have better armor and weapons than the Mexican military. They have drones. They have they submarines! Have... And what was it? I heard... That, I can't remember who, which one, which cartel it was, but he was close to being apprehended and, and by the Mexican government, and he said, stop. If you let me go free, I'll pay your national debt. Yes, I heard of that, too. It was more, like, in the 60s, something like that. Right. But um, it did happen. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I, but I'm not I'm not pro any cartels and drug lords and everything, but... Well, I, think, I don't think anybody really is. But <laughs> if... I think, in a way, if those people were actually care about their country, about their people, they would be very loved. Yeah. They if, would, like... Many of them have billions of dollars of wealth, and if they put it to, like, education, school, hospitals... I think even the government will protect them more than they already do, but... If they wanted to get out of it, they probably could. Yes. If they, if they gave a big chunk of their fortune to the Mexican government, they could probably get out of it if they really wanted to. You know, it's like paying for protection, essentially. Here's all this money I made. All right, I'm sorry. Here. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's not ideal situation, but, obviously, but, but the other thing that strikes me is, okay, well, if that's not happening, then these drug lords that are being taken out, what happens to all their money? Yeah, exactly. Where does it go? Exactly. And that's where the corruption comes in. It goes into the pockets of politicians and not into the mouths of children and sure. into the education sure. of them. And, but, you know, of course, we always try to be apolitical on the podcast, even if it's with the politics of another country that we're not part of. So True. But yes. when it comes to drug lords, I think everyone's pretty <laughs> unanimous Everyone's pretty much universally, yeah, we should stop that. Yeah. So There's no pro-drug lord bumper stickers that are floating around. <laughs> no. I don't think so, anyway. And maybe in Colorado, because now pot's legal there. But <laughs> but some people argue that pot is barely a drug. So, uh, yes. yeah. But again, that's a whole other topic. We're, we're getting off on our little tangent. It, it is. It is. This is, again, an apolitical yeah. podcast. So, um, folks, we hope you've enjoyed this extremely interesting look into the story of Mexico, because it is still being written. And obviously, there's a lot that we... we couldn't go over because for time oh, constraints tons of it and you know what's sad is that because we were focusing so much on and we really should just call this what it is it's the political history of mexico because when it comes down to the actual cultural history of mexico we we hardly even touched on that at all and it has such a deep rich heritage and culture something that i've been adopted into because martha and i have, have been together for so many years now and her family you know instantaneously took me in and just saw me as one of their own and being so welcoming. And I've had so many life-enriching experiences because of the time that I've spent with Martha and her family and being enriched in Mexican culture. My daughters now have a mixed heritage. They have a history that they can look at on two fronts. And it is something that I am so thankful for. And so I think that we'll definitely have to revisit the topic again sometime in the future. But I would love to do it from a uh, from a culture of Mexico perspective because there's so much that I've learned, so much that I've gotten to know by spending time with Martha and her family that I would love to be able to share in those experiences. Um, so certainly, this I think we'll, let's label this what it was. Then it's a, a political history of of Mexico. Sure, absolutely, and we will revisit the topic again in the, in the future. Of course. And Martha, of course, thank you so much 
for being on the show. And I know you're not feeling good tonight, too. And I dragged her into here to record because she's not feeling good, but no, she was, really wanted to do it. It was a pleasure. It was a really big pleasure. And actually, like you said, I also learned a lot of things that I didn't even know or heard about. Yeah. So it was um, enriching for me, too. Absolutely. And yeah. everybody read about Mexico. It's great culture, great history, and go visit it. Go visit sometime. Mexico it's, City it's is very, a great place. It's very pretty. We have a lot of beaches and everything. <laughs> so go have fun. Yeah. Go, fi- go have fun. This message has been brought to you by the Mexican Tourism Board. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, I yeah. know. It's kind of going off, but thank you for having me here. Oh, of course, my course. Of course. Uh, folks, if this is your first time listening to our podcast, hi, how you doing? Thank you. Uh, you can subscribe to us on both the iTunes Store and on Stitcher Radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also visit our many, many social media outlets, including our website, where you can give us feedback for future episodes or episodes that you've listened to previously. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can find me at the Brickmont. I'm Brian Moriarty, and of course, our company handle is at Nerdonomy. Absolutely. Yes, and if you feel so inclined, if you like what you've heard, you notice there'll be a donate via PayPal button. Yeah. If you click on that. You can choose to donate any amount that you feel uh, you'd like to give us in support of our podcasts. Primarily, our Nerd Cave is in need of some repairs, i.e. we need a ceiling. Uh, We're also trying to pay off a computer, and we're also trying to start our video initiative. Yes, and so far we've been able to acquire our fantastic air conditioner, start the payments on that very computer right there, and uh, also uh, do some uh, additional enhancements to the Nerd Cave because of all of the donations that we've already received, which have been very generous. And we just uh, we ask, if you can, like Brian said, if you can reach into your pockets, please. Everything goes to Nerdonomy. And, uh, or, of course, Hot Pockets. If well, Hot it. Pockets are going into the stomachs of Nerdonomy, and therefore they're going into Nerdonomy. Very good. Keeping us well-fed with preservatives. So, uh, <laughs> folks, until next time, stay nerdy. Tune in next time on uh, Same Nerd Time, Same Nerd Channel, Nerdonomy.com. Goodbye!